This is terrifying. It should just terrify everyone. I have shutters right now. Welcome to the Whiskey Topic. My name is Mark Ballock, the author of the Whiskey Cabinet. Today we have Glenford Jameson, food lawyer from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And today's topic is consumer protection in the whiskey industry. Well, Jamie's not here today. Um, Jamie, unfortunately, is doing a very in-depth research project for us. She is uh, researching all the different whiskeys you should have while you're sick in bed and, um, and have a cold and lost, she lost her voice, essentially. So there's a bunch of, um, eateries got a bunch of recipes for bourbon-based warm hot drinks. And, you know, she's got like 20 recipes to go through. It's a lot of research. There could be worse ways to spend a day in, uh, in when you're not feeling well. Yeah, so that so we we plan to have Glenn on the show today. Either way, uh, just unfortunately we're not going to be here with Jamie. She's uh, sick in bed and very sad, sending me sad faces through text. Do you have a favorite when you're sick? You're not feeling well. What's your go-to drink? I'm definitely a peated a peated scotch. Just straight. It's just just have it straight. Um, yeah. The same thing you drink every day. Yes, that is true, but it's especially comforting when I am sick. Well, I think that's wonderful. It's, it's very consistent. You know you know what your body needs, and you just make sure you get it to it. Yeah, I guess that's like me saying, I drink water when I'm sick. Mmm, a spot of tea. The same time I drink tea every day. That's what I do when I'm sick. Well, that would make sense, though. If you're a tea drinker, then that, that's actually, you know, or if you have soup every day, that makes sense. Yeah. Why does that flu think it's so special? <laughs> What are you drinking today, Glenn? Today I've got uh, Bullet Bourbon's, um, their 10-year-old high rye bourbon. It's tasty, it's oaky, it's spicy, high rye. Thanks, Diageo. That is a yeah, great bourbon. It's like Bullet, but better, which, I mean, I feel like you, you, you can improve on Bullet, and when you make it better, that's just an even better drink. Well, I have a special relationship with Bullet because it was one of the first bourbons other than maker's mark or like bottom shelf bourbon that came to ontario in a lot of ways and so i started drinking this stuff um yeah fairly early on in my bourbon career i think i talked about this last podcast that i was on and yeah i've always had the orange label regular stuff but uh when you age it out a little bit it becomes uh quite oaky which is great and uh, and that spice changes a little bit which is uh, which is a neat experience see it matured how about you mark what are you into so I'm I'm gonna mess up the pronunciation of this, but I'm uh, drinking the Ben Reich, twelve year old. Uh, it's uh, sherry matured single malt scotch from Scotland, naturally, and um, I like this. I did a, I went to a tasting uh, about a month ago, and it was in a very kind of posh tasting, uh, and. Ben Reich really focuses more on sherry flavors for the time being, and it came down to the fact that a lot of the they when the company got rebought, they had a lot of um, a lot of bad quality whiskey. They just had whiskey that wasn't maturing very well, wasn't well taken care of. And so what they ended up doing was like, well, let's mature this in sherry casks. But they didn't do what uh, they typically do. They didn't have like brand new sherry casks that were just, just you know, just taken, uh, just purchased. They used very old, well-used sherry casks. So you don't get that overabundance of sherry flavor. And they started bottling it and it did really well. It did really well in Japan. It sold out, and they started making this style of whiskey, uh, which you know is more subtle because it's not like I said, it's not like a three-month-old finished sherry cast scotch. It's been aged for three to four years, so it's a little more. It doesn't quite hit you with sherry flavor, but it gives you enough of that sherry flavor that you're 
you're, you're drinking a nice whiskey. The, the better example of a Benreich is the uh, 20-year-old because that's not been finished in anything. It's just malted barley, typically like American oak, um, and, and a very nice single malt scotch, uh, very subtle and very, very subtle flavors. So if I were a cynic, which I can be, what you just said to me is you're drinking a sherry cocktail that's nicer than most sherry cocktails because the distillery doesn't make very good scotch. And if you want to try the not very good scotch, you should just get the straight stuff. Kind of, yes. Idea. So the idea behind it is they created a flavor profile that was working in the in the consumer group. Um, they created a profile that people liked. Um, I think that what they're doing now, uh, they've you know got a fat, fantastic whiskey maker. They're focusing on the fermentation process, which I thought was really fascinating. They're uh, they feel they get more floral notes and more uh, more of the barley flavor in their scotch when they focus on the fermentation. So the example I was given, you know, every distillery has its spiel. It has what they do differently to separate itself out. So you know, some like uh, Glenmorangie has like the tallest stills in Scotland because they want a very smooth flavor. Um, Ardbeg has very short, stubby stills because they want it lot of flavor. Um, ben Reich says that they do uh, a very long 36-hour fermentation process. Normally, it's 48. Uh, more, normally, it's you know three or four hours. And with that fermentation process, they gently raise the temperature of the water, so they're not um, so they're not you're, they're not hasting that process. You can compare that to making coffee, right? You you want a, the right temperature, and you can make a quick coffee by having a high temperature and just push that coffee out, or you could go to a lower temperature and, you know, wait for that espresso to pour through. So very kind of similar concept. And they do, um, and so what they're focusing on is that fermentation process. It's, uh, and they also use unfiltered water, which water is a big thing. Uh, a lot of distilleries don't want to deal with heavy waters because it, it um, creates a lot of problems for the distillery because, you know, heavy waters a lot of calcium deposits, everything else, you, you're, you're ended up doing a lot of cleanup. Um, but in a lot of distillers talk about the water that they use and how important that is. But some of the distillers will just filter that water through. They'll, they'll remove all the impurities. So yeah, they're using mineral water, but it's just diluted water by the time it gets to the fermentations point. Um, so that's kind of this, that's, that's their spiel. Uh, but it's a really, it's a fantastic whiskey maker and the, um, uh, the whiskey itself, like I said, 20-year-old is just a very, very kind of classic space-side, quote-unquote, style uh, whiskey that does really well. I like the 12. I like the 12 that it's not overpowering the sherry notes. I agree with you. It hides imperfections in the original liquid and the original scotch. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that so long as it's done well. So here's something that I've wanted to ask you since we attended uh, the Spirit of Toronto event together. And I don't want to trod all over that topic because you and Jamie spoke about that event in depth. You said, let me preface this with, uh, I'm more of a bourbon drinker than I am a scotch drinker. Initially, more of a scotch drinker. And then in the last, say, eight years or so, I've really taken to bourbon. And I asked you about this because you're coming to bourbon later. Uh, and your response to me in a very sad tone was, you know what, Glenn? I just feel like we can't get the good stuff here. Like the good scotch is all held over there. Mm -hmm. You can still get the good bourbon over here. Less and less so every 
every year. You know, I mean, I think the the sales in this uh, from Scotland are are going down. Um, not in, you know, and it's an industry wide problem. Um, Diageo is having a problem selling Scotch. Um, their their sales are going down, and it's partially being blamed on. It's partially being blamed on. Uh, China and the, the fact that their market is slowing down uh, rapidly uh, because of their market growth. So there's a lot of you know a lot of reasons we're giving why that's that's the fact. But I do think you know I mean I think it's also we talked a little bit about this on this last show with Davin and Jamie. Um, I don't think those whiskeys are as popular because you really look at Scotch. It's it is a more subtle drink. It is a softer drink. It is more, it has more complexity. It's more of a sipper and thinker. Uh, whereas the the bourbons uh, that are really popular right now are excellent and they're uh, easy to drink and they have a ton of flavor. And Glenn, before you ask me the question, you're going to ask me this question. Well, why is Japanese whiskey so so uh, popular when it is focused on subtle flavors? But I would say Japanese whiskey um, has in general, the better Japanese whiskeys have more flavor and do bring more of, have a slightly louder voice than single malt scotch does as a general statement. Uh, and also scotch is expensive. At the end of the day, scotch is very expensive. So if you're looking at a $50 or under price point, there's not a lot of good scotch you can buy for that price point. And I would say almost, I would say in most cases I would pick, um, a bourbon or a rye to a blended, you know, cheap, cheaper blended scotch. What's your daily drinker if you're drinking scotch? You don't have a daily drinker. That's your whole bit. But if you did, if you had to, what's your drink? What's your scotch or what's the value of the bottle of that scotch? I ask you that because for bourbon, uh, if you hang out on Reddit at all, and I'm partial to agree with this, the daily drinker is de facto Weller. Uh, or is uh, Jim Beam's um, like special black label, I think, Jim Beam Black. Mm -hmm. And so Weller here is $45 a bottle, which seems like a lot, but that's sort of where you can you can earmark where a daily drinker might exist and means you can enjoy whiskey as a, as a daily drinker as opposed to a special occasion. I mean, with scotch, where, where are you left? I mean, what can you get for $45 here? I don't think it's a whole lot. Yeah, I don't even think uh, Johnny Walker Black is $45. And, and that, that would be a, a good daily drinker. I think that would be a really fine drinker. I'd, I'd probably go with something like Grant's Family Reserve. Um, you can get that in about that 30 to $40 range. Um, it, it's uh, the same. Uh, it's owned by uh, the same group that owns Belvini and Glenfiddich. So they basically blend. Uh, those two products. That's a, that's a pretty good one. I think if you're going to step outside of Scotland, um, three ships, uh, five year old whiskey, which you've you've had, Glenn. I we've, we've had this in the blind tasting uh, with with a group of friends, and I it's a thirty five dollar here kind of drink, so it's relatively reasonably priced. But that's not Scotch, though. No, I don't. That's what I'm saying. If you step outside of Scotland, I've got options for you. But within uh, Scotland, so Johnny Black is a great example. Yeah. So Johnny Black's probably fifty five here, something to that effect. Yeah. And so you're paying a ten dollar premium to not necessarily drink anything special but just have a have a daily drinker just to drink scotch yeah because i i couldn't name a scotch in that price point there used to be and i think you know five years ago there used to be but um and that's could also be a, where the market is so you know whiskey in general the sales have increased significantly in the last 10 to 15 years um and you could argue that scotch is ahead of the curve this way as far as deteriorating supply and deteriorating quality so you could argue that really uh, scotch is at 
past the peak of where they can produce enough whiskey that's of a good quality. And now you have, and of course the price points on everything have gone up, but price points on Japanese whiskeys have gone up 30% in just six, in six months. Uh, price of bourbon is going up, generally speaking, is going up. Uh, so you can argue that in five years we'll be in the same point with bourbon and we're probably already at the same point with Japanese whiskey. I, well, some of my favorite Japanese whiskey I can't get anymore and it's, it's, it's selling out in Japan. It's shocking what it costs and how hard it is to get. Yeah. No, really, I think we're left with very few options. I mean, one of which is uh, Canadian whiskey, which you spoke to. And then after that, I think it's outside of the whiskey world. Like I've been trying to push myself to try and drink sherry for many years now, solely on the basis that all of the grandmothers that support that industry right now are slowly dying and I'm you can get into a very nice bottle of sherry for virtually nothing now. Um you just need to learn to like that that palate. Very dry, high end, beautiful stuff. Nobody drinks it. I mean, you said this before. Uh scotch makers are like paying sherry makers to make sherry so that they can get casks uh of whiskey. And if we like sherried whiskey so much, why don't we just like sherry? I mean, that makes so much sense to me. That's a great question. And I I think most of the um most of the sherry casks are probably used to make vinegar and, and other products that are not sherry. They they have you know it's really there's so little sherry made um, that it's it's really affecting the whiskey industry and to the point where I don't even think the sherry casks. That's why you'll have um, some some Scotch makers will tell you the type of sherry casks that they use. They'll tell you, hey, um, this is actually. The, what they're telling you is this is actually to make sherry because if it just says sherry finished, it probably will never be sherry in that cask, whatever was bef there before. Right. This is Oloroso finished, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. So, Glenn, there's a reason why we have you on today. And uh, you're you're by trade a food lawyer um, and a corp. You know what? I'll let you tell me what you do. Uh, sure, Mark. So I'm a, I'm a food lawyer. Uh, and so that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, for me, that means I'm largely a corporate commercial solicitor. So I deal with uh, transactions uh, between uh, between food businesses and investors or between two different food businesses. Uh, I also deal with uh, intellectual property insofar as uh, a lot of the information that's within the food sector is not protected. Think uh, Coca-Cola, the idea of uh, 11 people knowing the recipe and flying on different planes and that sort of uh, notion that was very alive for a long time about the secret recipe there. Uh, and then I deal with uh, regulatory issues and consumer protection within the food sector. And for me, usually that means complying with uh, Canada's uh, Food Inspection Agency uh, and the province's Food Inspection Agency in Ontario, uh, and making sure that they're compliant and licensed and to code so that when things do go wrong within Canada's food system, that they're protected and that they're doing their best to protect consumers. Yeah, and Glenn, Jamie and I wanted to have you on because, um, you know, kind of continuing on the conversation from the last podcast with Devin, um, as far as whiskey and food added as whiskey and additives, and how whiskey is defined, and um, want to hear your your comments on this. I, I'll introduce kind of where this conversation started. Um, it's been an ongoing conversation in the podcast, but also uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Glenn and I were in Austin with the with a group of friends. 
and we started drinking uh, Texas whiskey. So we just, you know, with we we didn't have uh, Balcones was uh, pretty much sold out. It looked like, but they had other whiskey from Texas. And I spoke to the you know store store person there to get some advice. So you know what 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 should we buying to kind of get a feel of what he would say. And immediately he's like, well, if you want whiskey from Texas that's actually distilled in Texas, you really only have these two options. And there was a bunch of other, you know, whiskey that's at Texas. I think there was one that the TX on the bottle um, and everything else. But the store owner was like, the, none of this, the, it's either been in, in distilled in Kentucky or Indiana. And then, so we bought a couple of, we bought a couple of bottles. Uh, I think we bought three bottles of different, uh, different types of uh, whiskey from Texas, including the one he recommended that's distilled in, in Texas. And we found um, that I, I would say one was uh, not good. I certainly didn't agree with what I like in a whiskey. Another one was kind of tasty, but didn't really taste like whiskey. And the third one was okay, give or take. And uh, the idea was, well, they this is whiskey that's defined as whiskey, but it's not, you know, bald and bond. It's not straight. It's not straight bourbon. It's really uh, whiskey that has likely had some flavoring added to it. Um, but most importantly, for me, it stepped away for what a traditional whiskey tastes like. And the questions that came out with was, well, these whiskeys weren't cheap. They were between forty to sixty dollars. Um, so what's the consumer getting, and what are they paying for? And what sort of protections do the consumers have when they're buying a whiskey product? And that's a good question, what you're getting for a, for a whiskey as a consumer today. Because, I mean, in the United States, we've spent, well, the, the whiskey industry has spent a lot of time talking about what is or isn't a bourbon uh, or a straight whiskey. Uh, and if it's a geographical requirement or if it's a content requirement. Uh, and they've fallen on uh, it being really, uh, it's about uh, what's in the mash and how long it's aged for. And then there's also this bottled and bond uh, act. There was a Consumer Protection Act in the late 19th century. And I'm not an expert on U.S. food and, and drug law by any sense. But it's my understanding is in the late 19th century in the U.S., uh, you had all kinds of different things being bottled and sold as as whiskey Um be it as bourbon or straight whiskey or aged whiskey or fine whiskey, it doesn't really matter. A lot of the stuff was uh, was bathtub whiskey. Uh, it was flavored with tobacco or herbs and spices. It may have contained some degree of wood alcohol. And so there was a real push for, for some consumer protection. Uh, and it manifested itself in this Bottled and Bond Act. The notion with the Bottled and Bond Act is that uh, if you're buying whiskey, it's bottled in bond. It's at a federally bonded facility, so it's protected and there's interface with the federal government and the distiller. It's aged for four years. It's 50 proof, or sorry, it's 100 proof. It's 50% alcohol. Uh, and it's distilled and aged, I believe, in the same facility. And so if something's gone wrong in that process and you get ill from it, uh, there's recourse for you. You can identify where it came from and they should be able to track the entire system. So initially, this thing is a was really a consumer safety piece. But if we fast forward the 120 years from, from 1890 or the late 1890s, whenever it was in place, uh, it's become quite the opposite of that. It's become more of like a, a DOCG in Italy or an AOC in France with wine, where now bottled and bond in a way is a mark of quality so that you, the purchaser, knows that you're going to be getting a quality whiskey for what you're purchasing. You know that there aren't any fun additives. You know that it's proper bourbon. 
and you know it's been aged at least four years. So even though if it doesn't say that on the bottle, you know that it's been of certain quality. So what we encountered in Texas is uh, a bunch of distillers that have chosen to be orphans from any real regulatory system and uh, are operating more in sort of the buzzword universe of, uh, of like beer, for example. Like these were craft distillers. These were people that were uh, making, making handcrafted uh, whiskey and they're not noting this bottle and bond piece or bourbon or straight whiskey. And as soon as you deviate, deviate from those, those terms, whiskey can really mean almost anything. Uh, in Canada, we've got, uh, we've got some definitions for what uh, whiskey and what bourbon and what scotch are. Uh, but our rye whiskey definition includes space for something called flavorings. And flavorings can be virtually anything. Uh, and so, I mean, given we were with, so Mark was in Texas. Uh, we all had another people. We had other people who were excellent tasters. And those people said, this doesn't taste like whiskey or this tastes like the yellowtail wine of whiskey in that there's some syrups in here. There's some artificial flavoring that's putting you into sort of a like an artificial whiskey zone. Uh, and there's no indication of that on the bottle. There's no ingredient list. One thing that's crazy in the alcohol universe is that we're not required to put ingredients on the labels. There's no calor- caloric information which is, again, only for alcohol. They're exempted from that process. There's just alcohol by per volume, uh, and then usually where the distiller is from, and some basic labeling information. So because of that, the consumer's left having no idea really what they're consuming. I mean, they've got a base level of knowledge in terms of its whiskey, but the stuff that we drank didn't really taste like whiskey. I mean, per you, I'm a novice when it comes to drinking this stuff. Um, but, uh, I mean, Mark, your words were, this doesn't taste like whiskey. Yeah, and, you know... I. I felt like um, one of the whiskeys we tasted, I actually enjoyed. I was, you know, I ended up drinking a, uh, a bit of that bottle and it wasn't a bad go-to spirit, uh, but it wasn't necessarily a whiskey. And I feel uh, there's no criticisms if you do like these whiskeys. It's just more what you're paying for and is it worth that level? Because I could see somebody that doesn't drink a lot of whiskey picking up a bottle that, you know, TX a whiskey and going and tasting it about this tastes different. And difference is usually refreshing, right? If you're comparing, if you don't drink a lot of whiskey, if you don't drink a lot of wine, you have something you're like, this tastes different. It kind of sparks, you know, different neurons and you can appreciate that. And that's, that's great. That's not really where my criticism is. My criticism is more, uh, where's the consumer protection on what the value that they're getting? So, you know, you know the fish that you buy, you know what ocean it comes from. Now, fish regulation, I know, is a whole other stuff we don't want to get into. But in, if, speaking from a complete novice, novice point of view, you generally kind of know where things come from. You, if it says, if it has a f- name of the farm the beef is, you know, from, you know it comes from that farm. You can do some research. Uh, you know, there there are in, in, in the real, like in a food craft industry, I guess not really craft, in the uh, food uh, farmer's market industry, you're able to have some idea of where things are from and that openness is there, maybe not as regulated, but it is there. And there are regulations of what can or can't be in food uh, to some degree. But what's your, so I guess my biggest thing is you're paying $50 for a bottle of whiskey. What if it was, you know, really cheaply distilled, barely aged flavored whiskey? Now you're paying $50 for a product that's probably... Um, cheaper to make than your cheapest uh, Jack Daniels. Well, I think that, I mean, the example of, of the fish sector is a great, a great one. Uh, and it's really on point. Uh, a couple of years ago, 
the New York Times put out a huge expose that suggested that whatever you're buying at the market under a certain label of fish is probably not actually that fish. And the Consumer Reports in the United States did a, uh, uh, a major buy and did some DNA testing and the amount of fish and frozen fish that came back that was not correctly labeled uh, was staggering. It was like in the 90, 90% is mislabeled in some way. And so you're going in trying to get some really beautiful red snapper, but you're actually coming away with some coho salmon. I mean, it'd be tough to mistake those two, but I mean, that's to the degree of, of, of how mislabeled those things are. And so consumer protection really comes in when the consumer is not well positioned to understand what they're buying. That's the, the core piece. So regulatory regimes are really stringent when it comes to air traffic and planes, because when you buy a ticket on a plane, you have no way of kicking the tires and seeing what that plane is made of, right? Uh, and like the same is true of the automobile industry in that you have no way when you're buying a car to go in and, and inspect the veracity of the gas tank fittings uh, to figure out how they deal with fumes and if it's a fire hazard. And so governments, be them in Canada or be them in Canada or the United States, or the UK or Japan or wherever, uh, the first world generally has really strict regulatory programs for things that consumers cannot uh, evaluate for themselves. And so fish is a shocking example because beyond notional taste and identification, which depends on the, uh, I mean, the familiarity of a consumer with a given product, uh, you have no way of saying, well, this fish was drawn from the oceans off of Vancouver Island and is definitely uh, a Pacific salmon that's been wild farmed uh, versus something that was farmed uh, on the Atlantic coast um, in, in fairly harsh facilities. There's actually, I mean, to respond to that, there has been, uh, there are a few businesses that have started up. One is called This Fish, which is really exciting, that is actually getting farmers to GPS tag fish all along the, uh, the food chain. So where it's drawn out of the water, uh, it's tagged and it's got a QR code on it and they zap the, the GPS code on it when it's taken to the fish facility uh, and then where it's butchered and then where, say, at a restaurant. Uh, those are all information that you can grab from the fish uh, when you zap the QR code. You can figure out where it was drawn from and how it was treated, how long it was out uh, of the ocean and being processed. And that's amazing. In whiskey, we have no such thing whatsoever. And so we walk into uh, Specs. We went into uh, in, in Austin, uh, and we're trying out these Texas whiskeys. We have no way of knowing, like, where was this stuff made? Uh, where was it aged? How long was it aged for? Uh, did they add fun stuff to it? As a consumer, all I can say is uh, usually you've got great staff that sort of uh, make faces when you respond or say different whiskeys, uh, which is actually very helpful. Um but beyond that, you've just got a price tag. And so you see these whiskeys that are $60 a bottle in the United States, which is expensive uh, for us. Uh, that's, that's all you've got. And so we were buying these not inexpensive bottles of whiskey, and we just had no idea what we were getting. We opened them, and we were largely disappointed. Yeah, and, and it comes down to that lack of um, – it comes down to that – it, we just didn't buy whiskey. The problem is we we weren't buying whiskey. We thought we were buying whiskey. Didn't taste like whiskey. Didn't really smell like whiskey. Did look a lot like whiskey, um, but there was no way. And this is it was, it was a fun experiment. This is the reason why we did this without any research. We just literally wanted to go in there and get an idea of what that purchasing experience was like. 
uh, with whiskeys that weren't, you know, available in Ontario, weren't, um, weren't available here. And so I, I really wanted to go in there with that, that experience and, you know, largely disappointing. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're really, I don't think there's an answer to this problem per se. The, the couple of things to, to say is, you know, this is a big knock against real craft whiskey distilleries because there's no way to distribute, uh, there's no way to distinguish between craft and, and, you know, true small distilleries and larger distilleries. And the other thing is large distilleries are really good at making like straight bourbon, straight rye, uh, bald and bond. They do an excellent job of presenting that product. So I, I guess if I was to say anything, I think the one um, title that uh, craft distilleries are more should likely be taking on is that bottled and bond uh, title because I think that at this point is m- meaning more than straight bourbon. Even though straight bourbon does also have very strict restrictions around it, um, stricter in some sense and looser in other sense, right? Because uh, But for the most part, uh, straight whiskey has to come from one distillery, um, has to have an age statement if it's under four years, uh, has to, uh, it can be at minimum age for two to four years, but it has, would have to have an age statement if it's below four. Um, you know, uh, can't have any additives other than water. So it's also very, very strict. So these, uh, these terms are available to the consumer, but they're not necessarily well marketed or well pushed. What's tough is in the beer sector, uh, the term craft is becoming a dirty word because it doesn't really mean anything. And it never really has. I mean, you you get a bunch of experts together and they can sort of cobble together a notion of what craft beer might have been at one point. Uh, but in terms of getting sort of a, a number of hectoliters that uh, a craft brewer might make or a number of products or... Uh, the specialized nature of the beer, it doesn't really exist. There's no definition. And so now you can get uh, your craft beer from Budweiser or Coors or Sam Adams or whomever. And that's fine, but it's tough when you rely on the word craft to distinguish yourself from uh, more traditional products. And I think in whiskey, it's a big problem too. There's actually a great article, and this is going back a few years, by uh, Reed Mittenbuehler, uh, who just published a book, I think, and had a scandalous article written about it by, a, I think, a non-whiskey drinker. Uh, but his old position was that craft whiskey is kind of BS. And in a lot of ways, uh, craft distillers aren't distilling their own stuff. They're usually buying their stuff from major distillers and finishing them in a fun way. And so you're likely buying Beam or Buffalo Trace Sazerac or uh, Barton's Hills. or Heaven Hill stuff anyway. Uh, so craft, even in the whiskey industry, is sort of a, a damning term as well. It, it is. And um, I mean, there's also good examples of this. Willet, for example, um, is rumored to buy most of their old, older product from Heaven Hills. And yet I think they make a really, really nice, nice rye. And, and I don't know what that difference is between Heaven Hill and what Willet gets and what they do. There, there are exceptions to these rules, but they're not the general rule set. It's, and I mean, but I guess on the counter side of this, if you were to define craft and limit it to a certain amount of liters produced of alcohol, whether it be beer or whiskey, then what happens when that distillery gets bigger and starts producing like 0.1 more liters? Oh no, now we're no longer craft. Now we have to take craft off all the labels. That doesn't seem very fair or right either, right? So, I mean, if you if you reverse engineer this, it's more saying, well... Uh, we kind of generally know what craft means. Um, it is misused. 
But on the other hand, how can we actually distinguish what a beginner distillery is? And for that matter, does it really matter? Because a lot of with distilleries, like you said, do purchase a lot of their products from other companies. And I like the I like the term fun finish. That's um, that should be on a label. Uh, no, this is a really good point. Um, and I, I think that's why the industry struggled with it. So, I mean, the classic example uh, of an alternative regulatory system is in Italy with their wine. And so Italians have DOCs and DOCGs that relate to different qualities, but they're very stringent standards and they relate to both the geography that the wine or grapes are grown in and uh, how the product is made and aged in terms of composition uh, of the grapes. Uh, in the 80s, some marvelous uh, vintners decided to make uh, or use grapes that weren't native to certain areas. And so Italy responded with a regulatory regime called IGT or Indicazione Geografica Tipica. And that uh, meant to protect uh, some of Italy's now great wines, the Sassacayas and Gaias and Ornulais, that sort of thing. Um, and, and it's worked really well because it's been able to create some recognition for the work that these vintners are doing um, without amending a system that's meant to protect traditional ways of making wine. In, in bourbon or in American whiskey, no such regime exists. So if you want to live outside, it, outside of the straight whiskey piece, you can, or the bourbon piece or the bottled and bond piece, you can. But there's nothing that you can hold on to that means anything. And craft, for a long time, sort of felt like it meant something. And now I'm at a point where it really doesn't mean anything at all. It's just not useful. Um, and so where does it leave the consumer? Like one of the great questions is, it's 2015, so how much do we need these regulatory regimes anyway? I mean, before you buy a bottle of whiskey now, you've probably spent a few minutes either searching on your phone at the liquor store or searching at home on your computer and researching reviews uh, to determine how good the flavor profile is compared to what you enjoy to drink. I mean, do we need a regulatory system to tell us what craft means or where something's finished? I don't think so. I think Willet is a great example. Like we don't really, I don't care where the juice comes from. Uh, that company seems to pick barrels in a really nice way and puts together a very compelling product. Uh, and when I buy beer, I spend time on ratebeer.com. And before I buy whiskey, typically I search through the forums at whiskey, 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 because usually there's a cranky old guy who's uh, written an angry post about how much he likes or dislikes a certain uh, certain bourbon. And that for me is immensely helpful and it guides my purchasing decisions. I don't think that a government could ever put together a, a consumer protection law that could say, stay the hell away from TX or stay the hell away from these Texan whiskeys because they're just uh, a bunch of syrup in some whiskey um, that it costs a lot per bottle. Well, I, but I think we're saying, so we've said two different things so far. We've said we want to see more ingredients, but then we're saying, well, but there's a lot of stuff available online so we can research that whiskey. I would love to see a list of ingredients as far as if it's anything other than whiskey and water, just you can make it in small, tiny letters in the back. You can make it like you can make it so that like 70 year old me could not read the writing. I, I don't care, but just give me an opportunity. Show it to me somewhere on the bottle, which is I think what we want. We want just a tiny indication of what's happened to that whiskey um, because, you know, I mean, they're not, they're not forced to disclose. I mean, some of them do. Tem Templeton Rye is a good example. They don't have anything on the bottle, but if you go to the website, they'll, they'll talk a little bit about their, their adding a special whiskey um, and they call themselves, you know, prohibition whiskey and, um, you know, largely 
you know, largely whiskey of that era did have, there was whiskey with additives back then. So this isn't, you know, we're not saying, hey, this isn't traditional whiskey, but, you know, give us some idea of what's in that bottle. Yeah, I think, so again, this notion of, of preventing, uh, for, of this notion of not requiring any ingredient uh, listing on any alcoholic product, and I'm going to make no friends in the alcohol business here, is immensely frustrating. Uh, in Canada, we just went through a public consultation on what beer is, uh, because beer has all of a sudden changed in marvelous ways. Uh, in Canada, we're very slow to the craft beer movement, but now we're here. And so we're adding fun things to beer. We're adding uh, floral ingredients. We're adding herbs. We're adding uh, you name it, anything from from hibiscus leaves to candied ginger uh, all across the gamut. And it's all beer. And by our regulation, some of it is beer and some of it is not beer. We don't make space for, for things that aren't food. So, so those floral pieces don't fit within the definition. And so all of a sudden that beer isn't necessarily beer, which is a tough thing to live with. But the simple answer to all of this and something that I doubt we'll ever see because uh, uh, I think that the alcohol industry has a really hard time with this is standard nutritional labeling would be immensely helpful in determining what you're buying. Just as you're buying cereal and you're able to go through uh, what's in your Cheerios, you should be able to open up a bottle and look at the back of it and figure out what's in it as well. Um, it's not a high bar and it would really guide a lot of decisions because outside of that, we're left with having to understand an immensely complex regulatory regime that is not intuitive in learning about the Bottle and Bond Act to make sure that we're getting true whiskey. And that's crazy to me that you that's sort of required reading before you can go into a liquor store and make educated decisions as a consumer. Uh, beer is a good example. I feel um, I'm on the other side of the consumer spectrum when it comes to beer because I like beer, but I don't madly research beer before buying it. And I don't know as much about beer. And the thing is, um, you know, as much as I'm like, oh, don't buy whiskey with flavoring, you're paying too much, et cetera, et cetera, I am that consumer in the beer market. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's a Canadian beer uh, called Hops and Bolts that, you know, a lot of uh, beer writers have been saying, hey, this is not really craft beer, but it's being passed off as craft beer. It's owned by Creamore, which is a big brewery. And I, a couple of months ago, I bought uh, hops and bolts and I just I didn't I forgot that was what it was it looked like a craft beer it had a good price on it I'm like you know what I'm just gonna buy this and I bought it and I had it in the fridge and then like days later before I had a party I'm like oh damn this is that beer I need to now hide this from my craft beer drinking friends otherwise I will be mocked and uh, I mean I'm saying this jokingly of course but the whole idea being is that um, I get it there's the whole other part of this which is if you're not researching what you're drinking um, as well and you're making more impulse purchases like I tend to do with beer or wine, you are going to get caught up in this and that's not necessarily a bad thing because frankly, uh, Hops and Bolts, I get it's not craft beer, I get that it was passed off of craft beer, but it uh, tasted great. I gave me the flavor I was looking for, it, you know, it was a bitter style beer, I was like, you know what, it's an IPA-ish kind of beer, I like it. Um, on the flip side, I'm sure there's somebody that's saying right now, hey, I like my uh, flavored whiskey and I buy it and I don't care it costs $60 and it's great. And I think that's fair. And I think that's a fair statement. I think it just, my concern is more, um, we should know what we're paying for. I totally agree. I mean, it's always been the great thing about whiskey tasting 
two is you're always able to to dabble into bottles you wouldn't be able to dabble into otherwise because the price of admission is usually so high. It is sixty dollars to go and try uh, TX, or you need to go to a bar and and have them have it to have it on the shelf and and try it out there, uh, which is not my preferred way to to really examine a whiskey. Uh, whereas beer. Uh, the price of entry is usually in between uh, three and twelve dollars if you're getting into like a bigger saison or something. The other thing that every whiskey drinker should be slightly envious of when talking about the beer world is Rate Beer, which has a thorough review of any beer you will ever come across, both in terms of how well it adheres to its claimed style and also its general uh, quality. Uh, it's it's really exceptional. And you go into the United States and you're not familiar with a lot of local craft brewers, a great way to get to the bottom of what's worth drinking is is hopping onto that site. Whereas in the whiskey world, uh, you've got some resources on Reddit or uh, you've got people that blog uh, or you're just lucky enough to hang out with guys like Mark who really spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Uh, other than that, it's really tough to n- nail down uh, where whiskey lies compared to its price point. And that was what was so disappointing about uh, about our experience in Texas. What was amazing about our experience in Texas was I went into a Specs, I think, three times. Two out of the three times, uh, large Americans uh, walked by me to the checkout carrying at least one time, a man was carrying four forties of Forty Creek, and another time, a large American man was carrying uh, eighty ounces, so two forties, uh, to the cash of Forty Creek, which to me was mind-boggling because I don't think I've ever seen anyone in my life. And Forty Creek is made two hours from where we're recording this podcast. Anyone leave a liquor store? with more than a, a 26 ounce bottle of that stuff. It was like, I just stopped and my jaw dropped and I went full tourist and just watched this man walk by me, both cases. Uh, it was, yeah, I don't know. So in Texas, Forty Creek is the crystal of, uh, of whiskey. Uh, it just happens to come at a very happy price point as well. No, that's a, you know, it's true. And that's in credit to John Hall um, early on in Forty Creek's history, going down south to the U.S., going to Texas, going to New Orleans and um, and selling this whiskey to bartenders. He he went around, sold the whiskey to bartenders. Bartenders loved that whiskey. And um, and their rest is history. It's done really, really well down there. You know, I was uh, talking, I was at a conference last week um, in Vegas and I was talking to an attendee and she loves, loves, loves fireball whiskey. Talk about ad- additives. I mean, you're talking about cinnamon and sugar and, and everything else. doesn't label itself as anything other than that. But um, her, she, a lot of her friends um, were actually at the time were doing a bourbon trail and were, were big whiskey drinkers. So her and her husband would go to these parties with them at their house. And, you know, everybody else would have their, their crap, their, um, everybody else there would have their expensive whiskeys and they would take the big jug with a handle of fireball and put that on the table and that's what they were drinking for the night and again it's not really whiskey but we all know fireball whiskey isn't actually whiskey actually most of us know whiskey but i had a trouble having a conversation with about it because i'm like well it's a flavored spirit why don't we just call it flavored spirits like create a fancy name you know create the uh, you know, cognacs and, and all these other, there's all these other drinks that have added sugar in generally for the most part. And why don't we just call it something else? Let's, let's just 
get rid of the flavor and just not call it whiskey. Call it, I don't know. A liqueur? It's probably what it's called under the Food and Drug Act. Uh, sure. A liqueur, well, absolutely. Liqueur is, is exactly like if you get your Buffalo Trace uh, cream liqueur, it's a liqueur. It'll still say straight whiskey on the bottle. Um, but I, I have talked to, uh, you know, industry people that work for companies and, and they, are, they are equally upset at this, you know, dilution of the brand. Because I think when you put straight bourbon on that bottle and then you add flavor to it, it, it does dilute that straight bourbon title. And again, how's the consumer going to know the difference between this straight bourbon and that straight bourbon? One has, you know, honey in it and cinnamon in it and the other one doesn't. Um, it does create a lot of confusions. But overall, I mean, I do, I do think there's enough uh, enough information out there in general. And, you know, trust your taste buds and what you're drinking and enjoy what you're drinking. Um, but definitely what the advantage of having and buying and enjoying more whiskeys, you start making those price comparisons, which is where, where this really falls into what's worth, how much is it worth, uh, and price points and that kind of thing. Well, no one likes getting ripped off. It's yeah. that simple. You want to pay, um, you want to pay fair, fair value for, for a nice product. Uh, and it's, it's challenging. I mean, in Canada, I think the funniest thing in our regulations, uh, as respects Canadian whiskey or rye whiskey is that they, we've got this one little bit uh, in it, in terms of what Canadian or rye whiskey shall be, and it's uh, completely subjective. It is uh, they must possess the aroma, taste, and character generally attributed to Canadian whiskey, which means to me that there is a Mark Bylock that works for the federal government that tastes all of the whiskeys and is able to sort of say, "That's Canadian whiskey. You get the green light." Or uh, kind of tastes like fireball, which I don't attribute to Canadian whiskey. So that's not Canadian whiskey. And that's his job. You know, sunshine. Well, it's federal, so not sunshine list, but 120 K a day pension, the whole deal. And it's just CFIAing it up, like determining whether something is Canadian whiskey or not. I think I've got a job I'm going to be applying for soon because that's uh that sounds like it'd be a long waiting list if I want to do that job when I'm like 67 years old I need to apply for that job right now and and get on that waiting list because that that's going to be a great job for me when I'm older so I think we spent a lot of time on sort of the downside of where our regulatory regimes are in consumer protection in whiskey but I mean here's one of the upsides is that when you're completely orphaned from from regulatory requirements you're able to do a lot of experimentation. And uh, I've actually got in my collection a bottle of Stranahan's from Colorado that uh, I'd like you to try, Mark. And it's kind of neat. I mean, we talked early in this podcast about the importance of water, the importance of water when making whiskey. And it's something that we don't really talk about when we talk about bourbon. We spend a lot of time talking about it when we talk about scotch. And Colorado, if you've ever seen a Coors ad, really prides itself on the taste of the Rockies. And so this is made with uh, Colorado spring water. Uh, it's made in a Scotch style, so malted barley, I believe, but it's aged in heavily charred uh, new American oak barrels. So it's sort of a hybrid between the two different styles. Um, I picked it up in Florida uh, because I don't know anything. And I asked a man what was new and exciting and he just handed me a bottle, but, uh, but yeah, so I mean, this is the upside is that there's a lot of room for experimentation. Uh, th this bottle is uh, really interesting because it has, um, 
it has small batch on it. Um, so it's, a, I guess, a batch of different barrels of whiskey. Uh, it's aged at minimum of two years. It doesn't have any labeling, straight, this, that, or the other thing. It's at 40% uh, or 94 proof. And um, really great labeling. And its comment is J.Bisk. Hey, young world. J.Bisk is the man who, who would have, I think, barreled it or bottled it. Uh, and on every bottle, they just write something. Uh, so you have your choice of, of taglines. You're saying this is made of barley? I believe so. This is number batch number 149. So there you go. It's going to give you... And it does say every bottle is different. For the alcohol content and the age, this is surprisingly flavorful. It's got a lot of flavor. So it, it is barley. It is barley. Its ingredients are 100% Rocky Mountain barley, 100% Rocky Mountain water, yeast, new American white cask barrels, and then the time it takes to age it. I'm on the website here. I'm not actually shilling. <laughs> right. It's, it's like, hmm. I think I need more time with this. This is quite nice. It's got um, it, it's got like two different flavor profiles. It does hit you with a lot of the oakiness. It's it's quite oaky for two years. Um, it's it's giving you a lot of those traditional kind of vanilla, Ford flavors. You get a little bit of charring, sure, um, and it kind of ends in a very soft way. You know, it reminds me like if you were taking, you know, you take bed sheets and you like make a bed and then that middle part just kind of flows down very slowly. It's kind of how the whiskey is. It kind of starts off to that rush of that slap of the air and then it just kind of pillows down onto the bed. That's how I would describe this whiskey as a, as a first impression of what it feels like. That that was beautiful. Maybe I just want to sleep. Well, Jamie's not here. So I, you know, Jamie by this time would be like, I want to go to bed. I want to have a nap. <laughs> it's nap time. It's perfect. Yeah. Anyway, number number four uh, char on it, New American White Oak, the weird one, and sort of the the upside in what you're enabled to do when you choose to live outside of of being called straight whiskey or bourbon. I, I don't get any barley notes on this. That's fascinating. They have a whole diagram of how everything happens on their website. Well, it's different barley too, right? It's it's, it's completely different barley than than they would use in Scotland. So it might have a completely different profile. Uh, just like Canadian Rye and American Rye are a whole other profile for that reason. Um, but this is very nice. I'm I'm quite enjoying this. This is a nice, nice treat. I guess the most important question is, does it does it taste like whiskey? It does taste like whiskey. This is definitely whiskey. Hey, there we go. <laughs> We've succeeded in making whiskey. No, this is a, this is nice. This is a nice treat. Awesome, awesome. Glad I can I can uh, sort of expand your risky world this has never happened before i'm basking in this no actually you know what maybe when you chew it for a little bit it does taste a little bit of, like if you do a like, nice chew on it i I'm, I'm starting to get notes of barley you know and this is a great example of you know there's there's examples of distilleries that are doing it the right way um there's uh death store spirits uh which i've um had an interview with uh, a couple of weeks ago i was interviewing them rather and they were uh, talking about their gin products and they're also making uh, bourbon, but th their their idea is they want to do craft bourbon. They don't want to, you know, they want to do everything local to them, and they don't want to have any additives. The challenge for a new distillery is that they, you know, you have to age whiskey for the most part between two to four years to really get a, a decent quality bourbon, well, legally to get a bourbon, um, and this takes a lot of time and a lot of money. So for new craft industries to get into the market, it takes a lot. It, it's a big investment, and so there's different examples of companies that do really well. Um, there's Willet that's done fantastic. 
you know, in a lot of ways, Bullet, uh, that Glenn's drinking, is also a great example. I mean, it's not a craft by any means. It's mass-produced, but it's a brand that started out relatively fresh with a small audience and now it's going to have now it has its own distillery owned by Diageo so there's a lot of really interesting examples in the whiskey world and where you know there's really no uh, where do we go from here because whiskey is really popular there's not going to be any legislative legislative changes to the in the whiskey world it's more important for us to enjoy the whiskey that we have and and do a little bit more research on what we enjoy and you know as much as like I said as much as we were critical of some Texas whiskeys um, I you know I don't think they're bad tasting. It just goes back to what you're paying for and whether or not they're whiskeys. Um, Glenn, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate the legal aspects of it because, you know, you're not my lawyer, as you keep reminding me. I'm not your lawyer. This has been a lot of fun.